that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CATR 101.9 FM, CATR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Today on the program, we'll be discussing what seems to be the hottest and perhaps the hippest local issue in recent memory, the ongoing Waldorf Hotel saga, the uproar over the possible loss of an East Vancouver artistic hub, and the city of Vancouver's response. We'll also be talking about the loss of arts and cultural spaces generally in the city, and specifically about the lack of an all-ages space and all-ages cultural and art spaces in the city and what the province is doing to make it more difficult to see music as a minor. You're tuned into The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And first on the program, we're discussing the Waldorf. Uh, the sale of the Waldorf Hotel to Solterra, a property developer, has brought out an outpouring of support for the East Vancouver venue. And the tenant which runs the operations uh, indicated, and this is Waldorf Productions, indicated that they would be easing, ceasing excuse me, their operations after they were unable to strike a long-term lease with the owner. The hotel has a long history as a drinking hole for the city's longshoremen, uh, but in the last several years it has been renovated, and Waldorf Productions uh, has become known as one of, um, or Waldorf, uh, the Waldorf Hotel um, has become known as one of the hippest venues in the city uh, for local and touring acts. And since Waldorf Productions, uh, who um, does the programming and manages uh, the multi-room venue, um, they've announced uh, recently, um, with the sale to Solterra, that they are planning to cease operations um, in just a few days and lay off their 60 staff. Uh, and recently, there's been a huge outpouring of support uh, for both the pres- preservation of the Waldorf Hotel um, as um, an important historic um, venue in the city, as well as the continuation of Waldorf Productions and the programming uh, within the space. And so we have a number of issues at play, the potential threat of losing the Waldorf itself, um, which features um, the t- uh, genuine tiki bar and uh, the loss of a production company, um, which to many has turned um, this space into a real hub for arts and, and cultural um, production, as well as um, a, a place to have a drink and experience a tiki bar, among other um, other things like a restaurant, uh, Nuba Cafe, and other, um, other commercial um, ventures as well. But everyone isn't on the same page on how to handle the issue, and... Um, 
We're going to have a number of different voices here on the program today uh, discussing these issues and broader issues around arts and culture in Vancouver. Um, we're going to also be exploring issues of development and displacement along the Hastings Corridor um, on the program as it relates to arts and culture. Um, but today, on January 15th, Vancouver City Council voted unanimously to use a clause of the Vancouver Charter to place temporary protection on the site for a 120-day period. This prevents any possible changes to the Waldorf exterior interior, even though the developer, Solterra, has indicated that they have no immediate plans to demolish or redevelop the site, which is zoned uh, for mixed industrial and commercial uses. The new owner, Solterra, uh, would need to rezone the property, and this would take up to two years um, if they wanted to ultimately develop the property into condominiums. So I want to first... Um, We'll first hear from City Manager Penny Ballum and Mayor Gregor Robertson, um, and then after that to sort of lay uh, the context for this um, and the recent decision today from City Council. Uh, we're going to be hearing from uh, a number of guests on the program throughout the hour to discuss uh, these issues and more. So stay with us. Recommendation uh, after discussion with our heritage folks and uh, with Brian Jackson and others is that we actually use, um, notwithstanding that the property owner has been quite clear that they don't have any intention of demolishing and neither does the development, we, we still believe that in order to actually be fair to everyone and make it very clear that that's not going to happen, um, that we place a 120-day temporary protection order on the, on the site um, that relates to the interior and the exterior of the building and our provision under the Charter are the Sections 589 and 591 that give us the authority to do that and they're there specifically to allow the city, you know, to put uh, a fence around something while we expedite the completion of a heritage assessment and report back to Council and the expectations of the city are very clear, like we can't take forever, we have 120 days, we, we've got to get our statement of significance done, we have to, you know, complete um, all of the evaluation in terms of heritage and also enter into discussions with the owner about, you know, what do they think about the feasibility of aligning with that. So uh, if we were to do this, Council, if you were to give us direction to put in place a temporary protection order, um, we would be back under the law before May 15, 2013 to give the results of, of the actions of the Statement of Significance, the the evaluation uh, in regard to the Heritage Register, where this site might belong, is it appropriate for it to be on the register, and then the, the outcome of discussions with the owner and the purchaser of, of this site. And just a little bit of background on, because uh, I was asked by a couple of councils, well, what, it, what exactly is a statement of significance? And really, it's designed to identify why a property might have heritage value. And it, it includes, it's, it's a pretty systematic framework. You, you have a description of the property. You talk about the heritage values, um, what part it plays in the history of our city, um, what it represents. And so in this case, it's both, um, you know, a facility heritage piece, but it also, in terms of the heritage aspects of our cultural sector, um, it also has a historic role. And, you know, why we would why we would conclude that this place is of, of value and needing to be protected over the long term. So Council, um, I, that's the end of my presentation. I, I, want, I just want to turn to um, Mr. Jackson, see, Brian, is there anything else you want to add or anything else for Marco? No. So we're happy to um, take any questions. 
So that uh, I'm, I'm uh, happy to move that to get things started here. I, I'm sure the council will have questions, but uh, within the frame of uh, uh, of uh, an immediate step the council can take. Um, in terms of uh, a motion here, it's an important next step to ensure that the Waldorf Hotel isn't demolished. Uh, although uh, both current and future uh, owners have uh, stated they don't anticipate uh, demolition, but uh, clearly uh, it's important to ensure uh, there's no chance of that in the near term. While uh, there are hopefully uh, changes and accommodation made that enable the, the cultural uh, facility to keep operating on that site. Uh, that sounds like uh, a, a challenging process ahead uh, between the, the current operators, uh, Walder Productions, and uh, their landlords. But uh, hopefully uh, there's a resolution here that does uh, enable uh, ongoing cultural activity in the near term at, at um, the Waldorf and um, uh, that uh, we see uh, we see a positive result from that. I think there's been great concern throughout the city uh, with this uh, potential closure as, as another sign of uh, of a uh, big challenge for arts and culture in, in the city. And we, as, as we've done over the past four years, need to take every step we can as a council to ensure we have a thriving arts and culture community and economy. And uh, I think this is a, an immediate tool we can use uh, in the mix. But uh, obviously it's not going to solve the, uh, the bigger challenge uh, for the operators and landlords who, who need to resolve their differences. And I'll, I'll just say um, I'm, I remain hopeful that, that there is a resolution uh, on site. That said, uh, there, there may be uh, the necessity for Walder Productions to move, and, and obviously uh, Council and the, the, the broader community will uh, be watching that closely and, uh, and seeing uh, where constructive steps can happen to, uh, to enable a, a what has emerged as a great uh, cultural hub in Vancouver to, uh, to carry forward. Um, whether at, at the Waldorf Hotel site or elsewhere. So, uh, but in the meantime, I, I think uh, the city, city manager, you mentioned that there are generations who have uh, treasured the Waldorf Hotel, and it's been uh, amazing to see the success uh, in, in drawing crowds to uh, arts events over the past couple of years. It's a huge resurgence at, at the Waldorf, and uh, that would be uh, a real tragedy to lose uh, for the whole city. And that was Gregor Robertson at the end. Um, and first, you heard from the city's general manager, uh, Penny Ballum. And I have in studio um, Ryan McCormick. Ryan is a founding member of the Safe Amplif Amplification Site Society, and as well, uh, formerly of the bands They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Greenbelt Collective, the Roll Mock Electric Band. And he currently uh, focuses his musical work um, with Collapsing Opposites. Also on the phone, I have uh, Tristan Markle. He's a founding uh, member and uh, editor of The Mainlander, themainlander.com, Vancouver's place for progressive politics. And I want to welcome you both to, to the show. Uh, thanks for being with me. Hi, thanks for having me. Are thanks, you, Andy. Okay, thanks for uh, being on the line, Tristan. Uh, thanks for being in studio, Ryan. <laughs> so I want to first ask you, um, Ryan, maybe just so people are aware, um, before we jump into discussing what we heard um, and today's recent decision around the Waldorf, uh, can you give people uh, uh, an idea of what the Safe Amplification Site Society is? Well, um, we're a nonprofit that, in a way, we 
founded um, in response to venue closures. Um, feels like there's been a lot of them over the past five years or so. Um, there was a string of closures about three years ago with the uh, Hoko's and the emergency room and the sweatshop and the peanut gallery, Mesa Luna before that. Um, and so we kind of just, a group of friends just were like a little bit upset that, you know, we kept losing all our places to play. And so we thought we would, you know, uh, use that uh, DIY ethic and try to try to do something about it. So we founded to try to create a venue, which we are, you know, still working on. Um, it's difficult without big money and stuff like that. We're just a bunch of punk kids trying to do it ourselves here. Um, we also have recently taken on a bit of an advocacy role um, for music, the music community in Vancouver, specifically all ages music, um, and, you know, trying to generate attention for venues that, that come into trouble with the law a lot of the time and, you know, that have come into trouble with their landlords, such as the Waldorf. From your perspective, uh, what's your what's your feeling around this issue and uh, what's your take on it just overall? On the on the Waldorf? Yeah. Um, well, there's been a lot of venues have closed. This is one of one of several. Um, it's not personally, it's not my like favorite place. It's, I've never played there, but I know it is heavily used and there is definitely a shortage of venues in the city and it is people use it a lot and people like it and it's you know my position is that every we need more venues and so um i would like to you know speak for all venues or not necessarily speak for but advocate on behalf of all venues that you know whether it's your cup of tea or not um this is a good thing to have in the city and we need more um beyond that what's exciting to me is that there does seem to be this huge reaction to it and you know when a lot of the other venues that I mentioned earlier closed. You know, it's just silence. Certainly silence from City Hall, from mainstream media. You know, there may be a few people complaining about the sweatshop or the emergency room closing down or Hoko's closing down, but there was nothing like this. And so to kind of see this issue sort of really reach a boiling point and really kind of make it into the mainstream, you know, as, as horrible as it is to lose another venue, it's in a way it's kind of exciting. Tristan, I want to go to you. Um, you were um, one of the authors of an article uh, recently published on um, on themainlander.com, and it's uh, entitled The Story Behind the Waldorf's Displacement from the Hastings Corridor, uh, written with uh, Maria Wallstam, Nathan Crompton, and Andrew Witt. And uh, just like the Waldorf story has gone viral, um, the story that you posted um, has as well. Uh, it's seen <laughs> over 1,100 uh, likes on Facebook, which is uh, quite substantial. Um, what's the analysis? You provide a critical take on this. Uh, what's the analysis that you provide uh, surrounding uh, the news of the Waldorf and the whole, uh, the, the many issues around it? Well, one thing is that the closure seemed to take a lot of people by surprise. But what we wanted to do was show that development in the area and speculation in the area was is not new, and a lot of us have been tracking it for the last few years. So the area is called the Hastings Corridor, and over the past two years in particular, there have been large property development corporations that have been, have been consolidating uh, whole blocks in, or, in order to build mega developments. So the Waldorf is one of those blocks. And it turns out that the developer that's been consolidating land in that part of the corridor is Solterra. Um, and Solterra is a developer that we're familiar with in gentrifying the downtown east side. And I'll talk about them in a minute. But directly, almost directly, or Kitty Corner is uh, a huge development 
by Millennium, which you remember is responsible for the Olympic Village and the betrayal of the Olympic Village. So Millennium has been consolidating a lot. And then there's other huge developments on the corridor, including um, while, while Financial Corps at 955 West Hastings. So we can go into those in detail, but we've been tracking these consolidations, property consolidations for the, for the past couple of years. So um, although it's unfortunate whenever uh, affordable venues or affordable housing is lost, I mean, what, what we want to contextualize this in an in a economic framework where this kind of development is being incentivized systematically. So we want people to know what they're dealing with so that we can fight it more strategically. And in the article, um, you talk about um, particularly about the politics of Vision Vancouver and the development community. Um, but, and you say, you know, you sort of saw this coming. Um, where does that leave um, Waldorf Productions um, in this issue? And um, I guess more broadly, with this recent decision from the city of Vancouver, yeah. uh, the 120 days temporary site protection, um, yeah. was that, what's your take on uh, this decision? Um, it's received a lot of attention. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's um, something that we're going to talk about in a moment is W2, yeah. uh, which is a community art space in the downtown yeah. east side. Um, but first on the issue of uh, this recent 120 days decision within this larger context that you lay out in the article. Yes. I, I wrote an uh, email to some people I have been organizing with around this this morning, um, anticipating what the decision might be uh, involving the city and Solterra develop, development and uh, the Waldorf. And I was thinking that maybe the city might have been able to negotiate a couple of year reprieve on behalf of the Waldorf, at least. So if I was on city council, I would, I would have fought for at least that. That wouldn't be enough in order for the Waldorf to have, you know, um, enough security to keep operating. But then to see a 120-day reprieve, at which point the city will have to allow demolition when the developer hasn't even asked for a demolition permit was um, way less than I would have expected even from a really pro-developer council. So I, it'll be interesting to see if the Waldorf thinks that it can continue to operate. I don't, I mean, from their previous lease was, what, 10 or 15 years. Um, so I, I, uh, I don't see how they could continue to operate. I want to go to you, Ryan. Do you think there's, some have claimed, and this was claimed at council by um, the NPA and Green Party uh, Councillor Adrian Carr, questioning um, the exception or what looks like an exception that's being made for the Waldorf, um, which has not been made uh, or was not made for the Ridge Theater and the Ridge Bowling Alley. Um, not a music venue, but many saw this as um, a, a loss of uh, uh, cultural amenity or a recreational amenity, amenity within the community. Do you share concerns that an exception is being made, or do you think, well, maybe these types of steps should be made in, in future cases moving forward? Yeah, I mean, we've been calling for a moratorium on venue closures for a long time, and, you know, it is an exception. It does seem to be an exception and, and something different than they, they've usually done. First of all, I had no idea that there was this provision in the charter that would allow them to just, you know, basically freeze, like, capitalism or whatever and just say <laughs> for 120 days you're not allowed to take over this building. Like, it seems bizarre, but, you know, it's all right. So apparently the city hall has this power, so... 
you know, part of me questions why didn't you do this before? Why didn't you do yeah. this to save Redgate? Why didn't you do this to save Nyala? Absolutely. Why didn't you do? This? But you know, the other on the other hand, the optimist in me says, okay, well now you're setting a precedent. So now every time we lose a venue, mm-hmm. we're going to want to see this same sort of freezing kind of action happen. You know, um, so you know that part's exciting. But you know, it, I'm also a little skeptical. We'll see if it actually does anything beyond sort of, uh, you know, soothe people's yeah, anger I, in the short term. Tristan? Can I go come in and agree with Ryan there? Yep, absolutely. I mean, of course, the way that I would frame that is the way Ryan, Ryan did, which is that it is absolutely the case that the city is able to step in in all of, all of these situations, and we've always known that. We've always known they've made a political decision to not step in. So that's the way you'd frame that. But more importantly, there shouldn't be a one-off decision for the Waldorf and things like that. So just making like a, uh, some temporary exceptions for the Waldorf until uh, there is a demolition and a redevelopment and the Waldorf might get some space within some unaffordable redevelopment by Solterra in the future. Instead of some kind of like little negotiating scheme like that, where if you raise a stink, you can get some crumbs from a developer. We need much more systematic um, uh, uh, approach to making affordable space along the Hastings corridor and any affordable corridor like this so that um, there's there's art space for this uh, new art space instead of losing art space. So there's more affordable housing instead of losing affordable affordable housing we have. So um, that's what I say is that not a one-off, but we need, we need to completely rethink the, the way that the east side is being developed or, or really gentrified right now. I want to go to a clip from Ned Jacobs. This was posted, um, I want to credit the Georgia Strait on their website. Ned Jacobs is a community activist and has been uh, active around a lot of issues of development. Um, I want to go to a short clip. Um, this is only three minutes, and then we'll come back. Okay. Well, I think there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, I think that this is uh, uh, basically the, the pattern I see here is similar to the York Theater. You purchase a, uh, an old building that's, uh, uh, that's, that's an important cultural venue for the community that people love, and then you hold it for ransom. And I think that the owner and the people who bought it, my suspicion is that they'll be just as happy with a huge amount of heritage density that they can sell to another developer. They'll be just as happy with that as with tearing this down. So you can see the hotel being kept here, but this density in a relatively less expensive area being landed in a more expensive area? Could well be, or it could be landed on the same site. They could save the the, uh, facade, put up a tower, and the the community amenity would be saving the facade and maybe some space in here for entertainment purposes. But, okay, uh, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But think again. Normally, when you have a a big increase in population through a big uh, development, you've got to have community amenities to go with it. Those community amenities, for instance, pay for daycare centers, just as one example. So instead of getting the community amenity, the public amenity, the existing use becomes the amenity. And a, a landfall profit falls to the owners. Now that's what I suspect may be happening here. How do you think council should deal with this issue? I think, well, I think first of all, council has to realize that they 
uh, much as Bill said, they've set in motion policies that play into the hands of this type of destructiveness. And, and they have to review those policies. The other thing is, is that developers just have far too much influence. They have open access to counselors. They can talk to them even before they buy a property, get their uh, input and so on. We, the public, don't know anything about those conversations that are going on. And okay, that's Ned Jacobs. Uh, thanks to the Georgia Street for that. I want to bring uh, Ryan uh, comments on that. Is seeing the Waldorf and perhaps venues like this in the future as heritage value, does that then um, perhaps provide unintended consequences or sort of what, what, uh, what is the, uh, really what does that lead to, I guess is the broader question. And is it worth negotiating with developers over stuff like this? Yeah, well, I mean, he makes an interesting point. Like I hadn't thought of that that they would just buy up an existing facility and then basically main keep the status quo and then they come off like heroes and they can build their tower all around it while all of a sudden getting credit for like saving this cultural landmark um you know that that could be what's going on it's hard to say i mean it would be nice to know a little more rules about what community amenities you know what that means and what you know what the criteria are for something to qualify as that um does seem a little bit like it's kind of in murky territory. It's not like spelled out legally anywhere. I could be wrong. And Tristan, I want to go to you now. Uh, this might be a good way to uh, segue into the downtown east side. It's not uncommon for uh, large developers to purchase properties in key sites of struggle in the downtown east side to use as bargaining chips. So, for example, Concord Pacific owns several small lots and large lots in the downtown east side that they are threatening, sometimes threatening to develop, but mostly they've been using them um, to bargain with the city, saying, well, uh, we'll give this site to the city because anti-poverty activists have been fighting over them, like the site of the Olympic, Olympic Tent Village at 58 West Hastings, um, or the lot next to Insight. And so uh, Concord said, we'll give, we'll give these lots to the city if you give us increased density on um, North False Creek and so on. So it's a pretty... It's a good strategy to buy up interesting contested sites and then um, bargain with the city. And Solterra is their savvy, savvy um, um, developers. They, their property holdings are massive, and they own whole whole blocks in the central business district. So they're, they'll go for the money, and, and they know they can get squeeze a lot of money out of this. I want to transition now to W two uh, Community Media Arts uh, Society. And this um, sort of ties the discussion of uh, community amenities into it. This was, um, well, th this is a space within the Woodwards complex designated as the community amenity space. And uh, currently that um, organization, which, which was selected through a process um, by the city uh, to provide um, a role as a community uh, media art society to provide training and access uh, to technology and media and training and different programming um, for the community, a very diverse community in the downtown east side. Um, and currently um, they're facing an impending eviction uh, from the landlord, which is actually the city of Vancouver, in this development. And I'm just going to read um, an excerpt from a recent article uh, from 24 Hours. Um, and 
what we're told is, uh, quote, the locks were changed on the W2 Community Media and Arts Center at Woodward's in Gastown for security reasons. The city of Vancouver said Thursday, um, this, is, this article is dated um, back in mid-December, Objecting to the term eviction, the city issued a statement confirming they changed the locks but were given, giving the W-2 access to offices, lounge, meeting rooms, and computers during normal business hours. Anyone without security clearance won't be granted access after hours. The cafe, the, the cafe uh, remains locked at all times. Uh, quote, W-2 was not demonstrating capacity to adequately oversee the property they have leased from the city by allowing access to the space to individuals who are compromising security and putting the city's and other tenants' property at risk, and the staging of events which are not well contained or managed within the lease parameters, the statement said. W2 said it received notice from the city that they would be evicted December 31st, but when he arrived um, December 17th, the doors were locked, uh, said Rob Morgan. Um, He said that they canceled all the fobs and changed the locks without consultation. And the eviction follows a, br- a breakdown in negotiation after W-2 refused to pay the $85,000 annual amenity fee agreed upon when they moved in on September 29th, 2011. Total debt owed to the city is now estimated at close to $100,000. And W-2 board members did not respond by deadline. Uh, this is an article, 24 hours, um, published um, in uh, mid-December, and it is interesting with this issue, it has not received the coverage, and I'm turning to 24 hours, um, because it was actually one of three articles that was written on this issue. Um, I want to first go to you, Tristan. Um, This has sort of been underplayed, um, but this is probably an issue in a community art space that the city has the most, uh, has control to the greatest extent over the fate of this space. Um, Your thoughts on that? Um... I would li- I'd like to hear what Ryan thinks about, okay. <laughs> about that more, more than myself. I'm, okay. I'm not a, an art ad- advocate, and um, yeah, Ryan's space, Ryan's own space where, where the safe okay. amp is now is probably going to be redeveloped at the corner of commercial and Venables for condos. I know but, safe amp uh, doesn't have a space at the moment, actually. Oh, we, we oh never, yeah, yeah, we've, uh, yeah, that space never got off the ground, or at least not yet. So, um, but anyway, um, W two, I think. In a way, they kind of had an impossible mission, like to try to create an affordable, accessible space um, and simultaneously pay $80,000 a year. Like, it's a bit ridiculous. Like, speaking for SafeMap, we would have never signed an agreement like that. Like, that's, that's, it's too high. It's too large of a space. Um, it's just, you know, it's not workable. To be honest, I can see something as a, from the city's point of view. I do feel like that there was uh, there was some bad management decisions going on. I know myself. I've tried to book events at the space, and you would, you know, not get a response for two weeks, and then you get like twenty text messages in a row when you had emailed them, and you know, I mean, weird stuff like that that would happen that was didn't seem very efficient or very um, professionally run. Um, on the other hand, I sure hope that that's not an excuse to just get gut the whole space and turn it into you know, more condos or something else. Like, I, I do think that it, it is vital to have, you know, well, obviously it's vital to have more arts and cultural space, and I hope that that space, I hope that this is an opportunity to, um, you know, to see more accessible management come into this to the same space and, and make it more affordable. But you know what? If that $80,000 a year thing is going to continue, like, good luck. You know, it's not going to be accessible. It's not going to be affordable. Um, they gotta they got to lower that, cut that in half if, Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just going to be like that's, you know, it's more expensive than 
any of the halls or sort of private commercial spaces that exist now. You know, you can rent the the rickshaw or the Vogue theater, you know, not that much more. So, um, yeah, for them to try to create an affordable space for downtown east side residents and simultaneously pay 80 grand, like it's, it's a, it's a mission impossible. Tristan, over to you. Yeah. The, um, I think that, uh, the obvious thing to everyone involved was that W2 was supposed to be an amenity to the downtown east community in, ex- in exchange for or to compensate for a lot of the negative effects that they're going to feel from all these uh, uh, high, high-end condos in the neighborhood. So we could see all the negative effects uh, in terms of gentrification on on the 100 block of West Hastings. Um, it's it's all um, high-end fancy shops now, and the majority of the low-income hotels have shut down. There have been what the Carnegie Community Action Project calls ripple effects of good words. These are the negative effects and the positive effects that the community were supposed to get to compensate for that were some affordable uh, social housing units and uh, W-2. So um, it it doesn't make sense that there would be uh, such a high rent that would make it impossible to operate an arts community that would be appropriate for a low-income community. So now the city is stepping in and trying to make it into an art space that where downtown Eastside residents won't be able to participate and there would be um, people, people, uh, different kinds of artists with different kinds of income that, that, that attract crowds of different, different demographics. So something that was supposed to be for the community is no longer. So it doesn't really make sense why the community would support the Woodward's project now in retrospect. And, and of course, a lot of people made that argument from the start. Any final comments? I want to let you run, Tristan, um, yeah. on these issues um, or broader issues around arts and culture in the city. Can I, I make one final comment about the Waldorf uh, and uh, the, the piece that we published on the Mainlander? And um, we really did want to be really positive and make, make the connection between what's happening to art spaces that people like and to... Um, affordable housing in the neighborhood. And the example we gave was that Solterra, the developer, uh, is responsible for consolidating land and ultimately demolishing the Waldorf. And also, they have a big condo development at 189 Kiefer. uh, And that's been something that the low-income community has been organizing around the downtown east side. So, I mean, it's the same people, uh, you know, and they're going to vision fundraisers. So what what we think would be great is for people who are mobilizing to save the Waldorf to go to the events of low-income activists uh, who are organizing against gentrification uh, just on the other side of Hastings, and vice versa, to go to each other's events, learn from each other, build a movement that's uh, more broad-based, and both will have more success in winning. So that, that was a positive uh, uh, um, idea that we, want, we hope people would think about. Okay, and uh, again, if people want to check that out, that's themainlander.com. Tristan Markle, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Okay, see you, Ryan. Bye. And uh, we're going to now go to a clip from former uh, city councilor Ellen Woodsworth and caught up with her to talk about uh, the Waldorf. Here's her perspective on that 
And then we're going to go to a quick break, but we're going to be back um, with more from talking with Ryan McCormick about a recent decision by the province uh, to de-license or ban all ages events um, at several bars and nightclubs in Vancouver, but which um, obviously extends throughout the whole province. Uh, that and more on the program. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Stay with us. Ellen, can you tell me about uh, the Waldorf and uh, your take on the situation and, and what the city should be doing to, to deal with it and prevent future Waldorfs from occurring? I think the Waldorf uh, sale and the possible loss of the cultural space and the housing that's in the Waldorf is the breaking point for many people in the cultural community and is of a huge concern to people in the cultural community across the city because so many spaces have been lost, whether to condo development. We've lost the Red Gates, the Pantages, the Hollywood, the Ridge, uh, and possibly W2, and many other spaces. I think there's rapacious condo development in the city that's driving the face of the city and driving artists and low-income people out of the city. So I I was really shocked today when the motion by the city of Vancouver called on uh, 20-day hiatus because I I think actually city needs to be directing staff to come up with a city-wide plan to help support existing uh, cultural space and existing affordable housing as well as being proactive to set guidelines so that the developers can't go in and buy up inexpensive land and tear down everything that's there and, and create really unaffordable housing. Some are saying that this just gives the developer Solterra a bargaining chip um, to bargain or, or uh, ask for a density bonus on the site um, if maybe the Waldorf is seen as the community amenity or whatever the case may be, do you share that concern or uh, do you have other concerns as well? Well, I think that that's absolutely what looks like is happening is that uh, Solterra will negotiate with the city, uh, request additional density either there for another site and uh, walk all, all the way to the bank laughing and uh, the cultural community will, will lose uh, there's wonderful venue, and I think it could be similar to what we saw happen with the um, with the cultural facility on Commercial Drive, uh, the, the old Rio Theater, and um, what's happened to the Van East City uh, Cinema site, and another other, a number of other cities, sites in the city. And I think the, the Grandview Woodlands area plan is not complete. The local area plan in the downtown east side is not complete. And yet the city is allowing the speculators to come in. They're rezoning to suit them. And the city doesn't get back nearly what they've lost. And we're losing places for young people and workers in the cultural community to live and uh, to work. And it's soon it's going to be a city that does not work. Any final comments? Or do you want to leave it at that? Well, I think the city 
government government is there and the staff are there to try to create cities that work for everyone. Uh, and I think what's happening is we're getting the greenest city in the world that's completely unaffordable. So it's a city for the wealthy. And I think that we have to stand up against that and call for a uh, using public monies and public lands uh, to create a city that is affordable for the workers and the artists and the young people and the seniors and the immigrants who make cities work. She's a I'm sick and tired of hearing your band playing on and on and on. Gosh, so loud. Man. I wish we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all-ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get involved, check out www.safeamp.org. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And you can find this as a podcast at thecityfm.org, as well as a past um, archive of all the show's podcasts. And in the last um, number of months, but only brought to light recently, a new policy directive um, from the BC Control and Licensing Branch, the LCLB, um, will ban dozens of liquor-serving establishments from hosting all-ages events. And uh, to provide some commentary and just discuss um, this issue, um, I've got Ryan McCormick, and Ryan's been here um, since uh, the beginning of the program discussing the Waldorf, and I want to again thank him for being here. And um, Ryan is from uh, the Safe Amp uh, Site Society. And Ryan, what's your take on um, this, which you informed me is not that recent, um, but only has been brought to our attention um, quite recently? Yeah, um, the the policy directive came out, I believe it it was mid-November, and uh, it only came to our attention. You know, the joke I always make is that not too many people are sitting there clicking refresh on the liquor board's uh, website, so it's easy to miss things like this. But they did send out a letter to um, liquor primary establishments that would be affected by it, such as the rickshaw, and they passed it on to us. And you know, we then passed it on through social media and stuff like that, and it kind of, you know, went viral at least locally th- from there. Um, basically, under existing law, a liquor primary uh, establishment, which is a bar or club can de-license themselves, which means basically suspend operations as a bar temporarily to host an all-ages event. Um, Basically, what we're most interested in is concerts. Um, So that means like a a 19-plus concert venue such as the rickshaw, you know, if they wanted to, if there was a band that was, you know, they were maybe the band is young themselves or they have a young audience or for whatever reason, they can and occasionally do, you know, take away their bar license and operate as as an alcohol-free all-ages space. Um, 
not very many bars do this, and that's their choice. Um, of the 2,000 um, liquor prime, 2,000, I think it's 2,200 or something liquor primary establishments in BC, only 20 last year applied to delicense themselves to have all ages events. Um, so this actually does affect you know over 2,000 um, establishments. It's just the fact is most bars make their money from liquor sales, and so they don't choose to suspend their operations as a bar. Um, it's unusual that they do. You don't see the Biltmore doing that or the Astoria doing that or Pat's Pub doing that. Um, the rickshaw did from time to time. It seemed to me like they would do that when they had a hole in their calendar, um, just sort of an, a night to fill. If someone approached them wanting to do an all-ages show, they would say, okay, you know, if, there's an, if they don't have anything else going on that night kind of thing, they would fit it in and allow it. Um, while having all-ages shows in bars maybe isn't the ideal environment for an all-ages show, the fact is there's very few all-ages places, even fewer that are legal um, and that are somewhat, you know, supervised and safe with security and stuff like that. And, you know, say we will, that's not exactly the kind of show I like going to, but um, basically the the liquor board is saying that they don't want minors to be in bars. Even if the bar itself is closed, they don't want kids to be in a closed bar because they think that kids will somehow absorb through osmosis from the walls this idea of like a bar culture type of thing. On the other hand, what they're doing is taking away these sort of supervised spaces where there are, you know, experienced security staff and bartenders and stuff like that who are there, who who are familiar with what a drunk person looks like and know how to deal with them as part of their job. So I was just going to read the language from uh, the Liquor Control and Licensing Branch. Minors attending these events have been found to be consuming liquor either prior to entering or outside the establishment during the course of the event. Delicensing for these types of events is no longer permitted. Um, and if, this is actually from an article. I'm just uh, quoting from an article posted on the TAI, um from January 8th. And it was just interesting because this whole logic is is like assuming, well, you're coming here. It's because you're coming to a concert that you're going to want to be intoxicated or mm-hmm. get intoxicated. Um, but you would also... I would think by the, if you were somewhat rational, I would say that you would think that, well, probably teenagers are probably going to be doing this anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it just the music that they're going to, which is inducing this, you know, euphoria of intoxication or <laughs> <the> devil's music <laughs> um, or, you know, I, I can't remember. I read a, I think it was a commentary on the Georgia Strait that said, um, you know, little Johnny's probably going and getting drunk uh, before the high school dance as well. But you're mm-hmm. probably not uh you know sending an edict uh from on high to yeah. cancel that or or did we say only you have to be 19 <laughs> to go to the high school dance yeah or these sort of bizarre logics which to me i seem a bit like you know prohibition era <laughs> yeah i mean it, it does seem very like very much like a sort of a nanny state type of thing it seems like they're just basically somebody some grandmother type person complained that you know they saw some kids drinking in, you know, outside of the rickshaw, and so they called and launched a complaint, and then, you know, somebody overreacted and made this snap judgment, which it seems just totally illogical, nonsensical. First of all, it's a small problem. Only 20 venues last year in the entire province actually did delicense, so we're not talking about, like, huge numbers of this, um, but it's it's a step in the wrong direction. If it's a small step, sure, but it's, you know... We would like. I would like to see a day when age restrictions are gone. You know, just in the same way our society has progressed, that we don't have racial restrictions anymore. To, you know, I mean, in terms at least not, you know, officially, <laughs> but yeah. you know, we do have these official age restrictions, and so you know, to be taking a step 
you know, in the wrong direction, even if it's a small step, it's, you know, it seems like it, we have to sort of draw a line in the sand here and make, and, you know, take a stand. So I want to ask you, um, as, um, a founding member and, and heavily involved in SafeAmp, what, what would you like to see? And this further, in many ways, pushes music for young people underground because they can't now go see a concert or a show at the rickshaw. Um, what does that mean uh, for that experience? And as a musician, you probably want to reach out to people that are, you know, haven't turned 19. And as a young person, for a lot of people, this means a lot. I know it did for me, like going to concerts and shows was a big part of growing up and mm-hmm. it was certainly fun. Um, and then also, I guess, secondly, um, how does, I guess this, you know, in many ways speaks to the mission of Safe Amp, and maybe you could talk about that and what you'd like to see. Yeah, well, in the, you know, in the big picture ideal scenario, what I'd like to see is, is no more age restrictions. You know, basically anybody can go anywhere regardless of your age. Just, you know, um, and, you know, especially getting in the door. You know, maybe they still have age restrictions on who can actually buy a beer, but they can do the, you know, the wristband system or the X on the hand. Mm-hmm. It's a classic trick that's, that works, you know. Um, in Europe, they have it works fine. You know, anybody of any age, at least in the, the cities and countries that I've been to, you can go to a bar regardless of your age. You just can't order a drink. And you know, if somebody does pass a drink under the table, which is, I guess the fear that that's what would happen. You know, kids are. You know, it's not like it's the end of the world. It's mm-hmm. not like you're giving them poison. It's yeah. you know, kids are gonna. It's part of growing up that you do get wasted for the first time and you know, puke your guts out, you know, mm-hmm. that's everybody goes through that at yeah. some point in their life, you know, and I don't think it's something that we should be so afraid of that we're going to, you know, sacrifice human rights of like 20% of the population, like by human rights, I mean, the right to go see a concert and, and not be, you know, prohibited from doing that just because of your age. In, uh, in, in Oregon, I grew up just outside of Portland, and they do it strategically where venues that have multiple floors have the bar on the second level um, and then all ages below at the main level Mm -hmm. or some venues even just create a barrier down the middle but everyone can be essentially in the same space um, seeing the show just half the people are enjoying a beverage or not and uh, the other half are not yeah Um, I would I would draw the analogy to the like you know black people can ride the bus but they have to sit at the back type of thing like separating the space you know i guess it's better than nothing at least yeah. they're allowed in at least they're you know at least you're allowing people to to see the show but you know it still seems pretty weird to <laughs> to me you does know. this does this discussion speak i mean we keep having this discussion uh the waldorf is only the latest but you know losing movie theaters and the rio's very public fight around um remaining open as a movie theater, being able to serve liquor and doing shows and this whole issue that they made very public. Mm -hmm. Um, But the loss of places like Redgate and um, looks like we potentially could lose W2, um, which we just talked about. Um, This sort of mentality of liquor control and the way that it's approached, does this sort of, does this tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe our mentality in Vancouver and British Columbia about how we approach arts and culture? Does it speak to sort of our sensibilities in any way? Well, let's, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. But one thing I could say is that I've really noticed a difference in the way that the province and the the way the city do things. Um, You have something like the city of Vancouver seems to study everything to death for years. They'll have, you know, consultations, they'll have do research, they'll have planners, you know, you, you It'll maybe come on the agenda like six months later, whereas the liquor board 
they get a few complaints and they just sort of snap their fingers and they just change the law just like that. And it, it happened in a positive way with the Rio. You know, they were trying to fight to change the stupid license system that they were stuck in. And there was a few online petitions. It was a month of emails and letters and phone calls. And then all of a sudden, just like that, like... All of a sudden, you can drink at any movie, like in in the province, you know, and it was just this really quick decision. And in that case, that sort of thing worked out well for us. On the other hand, we have this latest thing where, you know, a few people complain, whether it's parents or grandparents or whatever. Police got sick of taking drunk teenagers home. Um, a few complaints. And again, there's a snap judgment. All of a sudden, no more. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, the bar can't de-license to host an all-ages show. So it's kind of... I don't even know which is better. You know, mm-hmm. in a way, I suppose, if, if the public consultations are actually listened to, and I know that I always refer to the rise situation, which I'm sure you guys have talked probably <laughs> a lot about on your show, is mm-hmm. where the public consultation doesn't actually mean anything. But anyway, if the public consultation actually did work, then I would think that it would actually be more democratic to do it the city's way and to do proper research rather than just making snap judgments. Um, on the other hand, the fact that they did make that decision with the Rio quite quickly, and I made this one, this, this decision quite quickly. It's you know gives us optimism that if we continue this letter writing campaign and stuff like that, they can maybe reverse it just as quickly. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, I mean, I'm going to ask you very bluntly: Is the possibility of an all ages space is that realistic with the way that real estate and and rents are in the city? Is that something that are you more disillusioned after doing all of... I mean, you guys have spent a lot of time doing research, talking with uh, the city and, mm-hmm. and councillors. Are you optimistic that that is ever going to materialize? Yeah, definitely I am. I mean, we have all-ages parks that are free for people <laughs> to use. We have all-ages um, gymnasiums that are free for all people to use. We have fitness centers that are like, you know, it's like 3 or $4 or something to use it. It's very affordable. Um, we have libraries that are free to use. There's all sorts of public amenities that are available to people of any age um, and are generally quite affordable. For some reason, there hasn't been the impetus to create arts and cultural space in that, in that same sort of socialized manner. It's sort of fallen on the private sector. And, you know, do we feel disillusioned? Well, I feel a little bit disillusioned in terms of trying to do it in the private sector, in terms of trying to just rent a space and make it a- available um, on an affordable basis for anyone to use. It seems like that is quite tough, but governments have found ways to do amazing things with skate parks, with anything, you know, all sorts of sports facilities that are available for free to use. I don't understand why it hasn't been done with music yet, Um, but I would argue that having a place to perform music and to listen to music is just as important to a person's upbringing as having a place to exercise and, and enjoy physical fitness. So if they can do it with sports, they can do it with music. You know, it's just a matter of time before it happens. Ryan McCormick, uh, thank you so much for being on the program uh, from the Safe Amplification Site Society. And where can people find information about SafeAmp? There's a lot of stuff on our website, which is safeamp.org, also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, etc. Awesome. That wraps up the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, live Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Fridays at 10 a.m., And uh, you can find this as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Lots of um, podcasts um, archived there, as well as web-only content. So check it out. That's thecityfm.org. We're going to go out with a track from Synthcake. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week for more critical urban discussions. Have a great week. 
Now, what I want to know, I want to know, what are you really thinking about? On January 15th, from 6 to 10 p.m., the AMS Art Gallery presents In a Celluloid Garden, a night of performances by six UBC students collectively commenting on the medium of film. The evening will also include a screening of Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut. The event takes place at the UBC Art Gallery in the sub, entrance by donation. Thank you. 